This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the continued coverage of NeoHeart 2022. Daphna, how's it going? Um, I'm doing great. It's been quite quite a week. Quite a week full of interviews. Lots of good stuff going on at NeoHeart. And so I hope people are enjoying this kind of uh, special special edition. Yeah. And, and if you guys have any feedback as to how we could make this even better, please let us know. We're all ears and we're figuring this thing out as we go. Daphna, we have a, a couple of guests today uh, mm-hmm. that are quite the, quite the pair. as The as duo, dynamic duo. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, shall I introduce them? Sure, go ahead. Well, today we have on uh, Dr. Kevin Marr and Dr. Shannon Hamrick. Um, Dr. Marr attended medical school at the University of Maryland uh, and stayed there for a pediatric residency and chief residency. He attended the University of Michigan for fellowship in pediatric cardiology, um, subsequently joining the faculty at Thomas Jefferson University in Nemours Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. He received an additional critical care training there with Dr. Russell Raffaelli and Dr. William Norwood. He joined the program at Emory University, the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in 2004, where he currently serves as executive director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit and is a professor of pediatrics at Emory University. His research involves the application of new technology to pediatric cardiac care, um, medical device development, and innovation in pediatrics. We also have on what? No. We also have on uh, Dr. Shannon Hamrick, um, completed medical school and pediatric residency at UNC Chapel Hill. Subsequently, did a neonatology fellowship at UCSF and continued on uh, faculty at UCSF. Um, then relocated to Atlanta in 2006 um, to join Emory uh, and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Dr. Hamrick's research uh, background was in brain injury and neuroimaging in congenital heart disease. Um, and so, thusly, she is uh, one of the neonatal consultants in the cardiac ICU there. Um, in addition, uh, she attends in the surgical NICU at, uh, Eagleston Children's Hospital in Atlanta, uh, where she's also the medical director of the unit. We are so honored to have them both on today. We're really not equipped to have these kinds of guests. They're (laughs) way too big for our bridges, huh? (laughs) I know. I know. We're just so honored to, to get to do this and talk to such amazing people. Dr. Marr, Dr. Hamrick, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. 
No, it's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. So we're actually talking to you from the conference. So there's a little bit of background noise, and 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 I think that makes it that makes it even better. <laughs> <laughs> the excitement is in the air. That's, that's, right. Just, that's right. I was just talking about how I had hoped that um, recording these uh, interviews virtually that I would have less you know, fear of not missing out of, of, of feeling like I was at the conference, but hearing every, I can hear what people are talking about and um, it's exciting. A lot, a lot yeah. of buzz going around. Right. So. Um, Dr. Hamrick, you, you're, you're talking at the PDA symposium this year um, as part of the Neo Heart Conference. And uh, I guess my first question to you is um, why, why are we having such a hard time defining what is a PDA worth treating or I guess, quote unquote, the hemodynamically significant PDA. I think those two have become synonymous, maybe maybe to a fault. But how come we've not agreed on a consensus definition? Uh, it's such a good question. And it's, um, it's kind of part of what I'll be talking about in my presentation as well. It's really kind of maddening, isn't it? I mean, we, we all see so many preterm babies. This is not novel or new in any way. And yet we don't have consensus for our definitions for not just what's a hemodynamically significant PDA, but we don't have consensus for what, you know, expectant management means. You know, is it diuretics? Is it fluid restriction? You know, is it PEEP? What, what does that mean? Um, there are a lot of things that we have almost no consensus on. Um, I think part of the problem may be cardiology doesn't help in that. <laughs> in that. Well, you know, you we it, will, not us. Right. <laughs> don't put this on the cardiology yeah. podcast. <laughs> but no, we'll keep the secret between right. us. <laughs> yeah. From, you know, we do our echocardiograms and look at PDAs and left to right shunt and, and resistant, you know, non resistant, you know, flow across the PDA. I'm going to say, is it hemodynamically significant? And then, well, depends really what your definition is. And, and so I think from the cardiology, world is probably the same thing, not a great definition of what is a hemodynamically significant PDA and whether that just goes to just the clinical symptomatology, whether that is what, you know, what it makes you decide, you know, when a patient has a hemodynamically significant PDA, but I think that can be part of it as well. And I think a lot of these measures, sorry, are so, so user dependent um, and patient status dependent as well that it's, you know, but on the other hand, we've managed to standardize lots of other, um, mm -hmm. lots of other variables. So. Well, I think that's a, a helpful way to to look at it. The topic you were given, you told us, was uh, treat all or treat none, which is, you know, what we kind of hear a lot. And I think for trainees, for example, this dichotomy mm -hmm. of you know <laughs> we either do it for everybody or we do it for for nobody can can be confusing. Yes, um, especially since we we still, our parameters are still kind of vague. Um, we're still trying to define, you know, hemodynamic significance. Um, and so it sounds like maybe it's not all or none and that we have to pick the right PDA and we have to pick the right baby. Yeah, I think um, it's incredibly nuanced. I mean, it's it's really, like I, you know, mentioned this, this title, I think was meant to be provocative, treat all versus treat mm -hmm. none. Um, because obviously that's too simplistic. But I think we are, I think we have learned more, you know, in recent years about um, trying to fine tune that population. And I think, like I so much of it is um, dependent on your 
center and the population you take care of and the clinical picture of the baby and, you know, physiologic variabilities. You know, I think one of the things that's the most interesting to me that came out of Ron Kleiman's Tolerate study, um, which I'm sure will be discussed at this conference um, plenty, but was not even related so much to the outcome of that study, but the fact that when they were screening babies to participate in Tolerate, um, which was, you know, treatment, um, medical treatment or not for less than 26 uh, week gestational age um, babies with a um, hemodynamically significant um, PDA. But to me, that what was most interesting was that the spontaneous closure rate was so variable. So it, it, when they pulled all the data together, it was 40% of the screened newborns closed their PDA spontaneously. But if you looked at the individual centers, that ranged from 8% to 78%. So if you have a 78% um, spontaneous closure rate in your unit, I wouldn't do prophylaxis, why would you? If you have an 8% spontaneous closure rate, that, you know, maybe you look at targeting the male LBWs, or maybe you look at, you know, certain groups. So I think a lot of, um, so we're learning more and more about, um, you know, what population to look at, but it's, um, you know, with, with each step that you think about treatment, it kind of depends upon your unit and that baby and, um, you know, screening everybody with echo. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's not an easy answer and it's certainly not as easy as treat all or treat none. So, so Dr. Hamrick, you are presenting at the conference this novel algorithm to, um, I guess, assess the PDA, is that correct? Or to manage the PDA and to manage the, could you tell us a little bit about what that algorithm um, does? Sure, absolutely. Yes, not not so much for assessment, but just to help with management. And so I like to okay. think of um, your options for treating the PDA as, you know, four different time points. So you may be a unit that is interested in doing prophylaxis. You may be a unit that's interested in early targeted treatment, um, such as what would be suggested by the Tolerate trial. You may be an interested, a unit only interested in um, late symptomatic um, treatment, or you may get, you know, you may have treated all along and it was ineffective and you found yourself in a place to do rescue treatment or definitive um, catheter-based closure or surgical ligation. And so this algorithm kind of takes you through those time points, um, not necessarily advocating for prophylaxis, but sort of giving the caveat, if you are a unit that has a very low spontaneous closure rate, you may want to consider prophylaxis in your um, ELBW males, for example. Um, we sort of start with early targeted and, you know, recommend screening echo um, below 26 weeks. Um, and so for anybody who's on respiratory support, you know, more than more than two liters, um, we would suggest early targeted treatment um, kind of based on um, the tolerate trial. Um, if you have either elected not to do that or it was ineffective and you find yourself in the category of, of late um, uh, symptomatic treatment, um, we sort of talk about options there um, for ibuprofen. Sort of all along, we're talking about the um, ideal uh, treatment um, regimen. 
Um, and then it sort of goes down through to rescue treatment and definitive um, closure. It sounds to me like a very Bayesian approach to the PDA, yes. am I wrong? <laughs> right, right, that's a very with, good way to phrase, to phrase it. With Bayesian, uh, base, with base rates. Type of statistics. I love it, I love it. Yes. I mean, when you're yeah, saying I that you're gonna look at the- you, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to look at base rates and do risk assessment, then that's my 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 kind of thing. <laughs> uh, in terms of um, in terms of talking about the PDA, I think there's always been and and um, and Kevin, maybe you can you can weigh in on this. There's always been this idea of if we're talking about a PDA that deserves treatment, it has to be hemodynamically significant. And a big component of what we use to define hemodynamically significant PDAs are whether there's like respiratory symptoms, right? And mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and you're talking this year at, at Neo Heart about this in terms of um, extubating uh, babies after um, after congenital heart disease and and the interplay, I guess, between pulmonary and respiratory symptoms and the heart. I think is something that we we understand as clinicians maybe at a basic level because we're looking at oxygen requirements, mechanical ventilations, and things like that. But where is the potential for us to understand the relationship between cardio and pulmonary in order to actually manage babies better, especially when it comes to these two parameters, when it comes to congenital heart disease and preterm lungs, for example? For, you know, making this, you know, decision, when is the patient, you know, ready for extubation? And one thing that, like, goes into the operating room sick they're going to come out sick and, and so that is uh that really needs to go into decisions so far as when you get the endotracheal tube out that's sort of a set number of you know criteria that most people will look at you sort of go through by systems almost like you're doing your regular rounds and so your cardiovascular and respiratory cns infectious renal fluid balance and and then what's the age what's the diagnosis when you look at the data, and it's sort of maybe particularly important, you know, to the neo neo heart, you know, people, you know, individuals, because the highest risk for extubation failure is going to be in newborns and or infants and and uh, and newborns. So really, the first year of life, but in particularly the first thirty days, the higher complex patients. And and if you think about you know like the Stat Five patients, the Norwoods, they're going to be absolutely you know they go sort of up and up so far as risk. Uh, if you look at sort of recent literature as to how common is extubation failure, it's somewhere between five and fifteen percent for mm -hmm. for infants. And and if you try to you know come up, we we just published a paper looking. At our last you know, 9,000 patients, uh, pediatric patients, about 5,000 5, of them were infants and neonates. They had overall a 3% uh, rate of extubation failure. But if, and that's if you go to the newborns, it goes up to 6%. 6 if you go to the SAT 5, it goes up to 15%. And so it really, I think, depends on your, you know, your age, your diagnosis, your weight, your preclinical status. If you think about, you know, these patients that have, you know, wide open PDA and, and what does that do to their lungs and pulmonary vasculature? And so a chronic state of overcirculation and, and um, you know, unlimited, you know, essentially unlimited pulmonary blood flow, you'll get airway edema. Uh, changes in, in sort of actually maybe a lack of regression of pulmonary vascular resistance. 
think all that goes into the, you know, the post-operative physiology and, and pathophysiology. There's pretty good data that shows that the longer you are mechanically ventilated post-op, the higher your risk for extubation failure. And so you do feel a little bit like between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. And so you want to extubate them right away. And do you want to, or do you say, well, is it one more day? And, you know, I often say there's the one more day syndrome, you know, before we take the tube out, before we do this. Mm -hmm. And that really, you know, the data would argue that that's not necessarily the right thing to do. And some of those are amenable to intervention prior to extubation. You know, perfect example is atelectasis, and and so you get atelectasis uh, post post extubation, and and there's poor gas exchange, and that ultimately contributed to needing more positive pressure that was you know required, and resulting in in intubation in a significant subgroup. So, can you start to think about well, maybe we need to manage our patients slightly different? Do you need more PEEP in the early post-operative period? I think like most institutions, we usually wait till we get to, oh, wean the peak down to five before we take in a trachea tube out. Mm-hmm. That might not necessarily be, you know, might not make mm-hmm. all, all that mm-hmm. much sense. Right. And maybe you leave the peep at seven, all the alveoli are as happy as they can be, and then you get the, you know, get the tube out. So there's, um, you know, continued work in this, in this area. There's a, a large PC4 study that's going to come out next year. That'll be 18,000 patients that are, uh, so far as uh, extubation and what the etiology and and uh, and frequency of extubation failure. That'll be a really nice, I think, contribution you know to the literature. Eighteen thousand is that is that cardiac patients? Yes, eighteen thousand post-op cardiac wow. patients from all the the PC4 centers. Wow, wow, that's impressive. That's very impressive. And you had um, mentioned you were going to speak about some of the work in um, your patients at your institution. Is that correct? Right. And so that was a study that's coming out this summer, I think in Journal of Intensive Care. And so that was, we looked at our uh, infants and well, actually all zero to 18 from 2009 to 2019. It was almost 9,000 patients. And that's uh, where we get some of the numbers. Overall, it was about, for all comers, about 3%. Uh, one, one month to one year of age is two, 2.9%. And then goes significantly higher, you know, for newborns. And then the highest was the, you know, the STAT-5 category. We found heterotaxy patients to be at higher risk, other genetic syndromes, uh, length of preoperative, if you were very consistent, if you were intubated preoperatively, that in almost every study that's been done, you have more risk of extubation failure, longer length of stay. Most uh, studies, including the one that we did, found longer length of stay and increased mortality associated with extubation failure. That's a little bit tricky, you know, which is caught, you know, chicken or the egg. Is it, you know, you have a complex sick patient and they're more likely to have mortality, the more likely to have prolonged length of stay. Yeah, they're more likely to have extubation failure. I, I, I tend to think that's really the case and not extubation failure is not causing, you know, mortality. I mean, patients, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, they get resuscitated and they get reintubated and 
and mortality doesn't take place, you know, in that period of time. Another interesting paper that I'll talk about, there was an early PC4 paper from about eight centers in 2015, and that was about 1,700 patients. And they had, a, if I recall, about 6% extubation failure rate. But what was really interesting is they directly compare all the eight centers to each other. Uh-huh. And there's a dramatic variability uh-huh. from less, less than 3% to uh, about 12 or 14%, somewhere in there. Uh-huh. And so what, you know, why are some programs having really low rates of extubation failure you know, versus others? That is something that will be explored as well as in, in the new PC4 you know, paper that's going to come out. But it would argue that that it really does make a difference in your, you know, your uh, pre-extubation evaluation, probably your post-operative management, maybe even your pre-operative management, and try to think what's the ideal time to be able to extubate these patients. I, I'm just, um, thank you for sharing um, that 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 work in such a large group of of, of patients, um, and, and we're looking forward to um, the study that you talked about. An even larger group of of patients that we would can hopefully review on the on the podcast. I think we have such a unique opportunity having the two of you on at the same time um, because that's really one of the hallmarks of the NeoHeart conference is um, how can we work together to take care of neonates? And so you guys are literally doing that at the, you know, shared institution um, to care for babies. Um, collaboration between units is not always easy or so, I, so I've heard us. I'll, I'll just, I'll, I won't mention my own experience, um, but um, ha- what's the trick? So what, what, what are some um, tips uh, for units that are, really trying to collaborate or um, working on, you know, keeping some neonates in the NICU or having consulting neonatologists in the CVICU. Um, what do you think is the best way to do that? You know, I think um, it's still a bit of an evolving field. Um, our center is part of the um, Children's Hospital Neonatal Consortium, and we have a focus group of uh, predominantly neonatologists who are interested in um, cardiology. And through that focus group, we sent out a survey to um, all the participants. And these are, you know, the most major children's hospitals in our country and, and in Canada. And found that now really the standard of care is that um, in centers where there is a cardiac intensive care unit, there's still neonatology consultants um, who will at least do a, you know, a one-time look over on a baby because there are so many nuances to caring for a critically ill baby. I think from the perspective of where we are at, at Emory and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, it's been super easy from my perspective. I mean, right. I feel um, very close to my colleagues in the cardiac ICU and I call on them, you know, at a drop of a hat for any, um, we are half a floor apart from each other at the moment. And, um, you know, I really cherish their input and, and hopefully they feel like I'm, you know, providing valuable input too um, when I'm there. No, it's the same thing on our side is that I think you just, one, need to recognize that there's a lot of neonatal management that is not the same as cardiac intensive care. 
and I, there's no question that they are going to be, you know, a higher level of expertise. And, and it's everything from, you know, from bilirubin to infectious complications to the eyes, the brain, you know, we're pretty comfortable from a cardiorespiratory standpoint. But if I'm having trouble ventilating, I will call Shannon and say, you know, let's take a look at this ventilator. And, and there's, you know, what, you know, for me, event rate of 55 makes no sense at all. <laughs> but she'll say, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but, but that is really, you know, just a simple example, but it's really important. I had a critically ill 34-weeker uh, come to my cardiac ICU about a month ago with congenital heart block, just amazingly sick. And so we put in a pacer, started pacing the patient, and put in drains everywhere. It was hydropic. And then the chest X-ray is no better. So <laughs> called neonatology, you know, maybe we need surfactant. Mm-hmm. And so the kid got surfactant. And I'm still traumatized by <laughs> having to give surfactant. But the chest X-ray was beautiful, beautiful. an hour later. And it really is so so really I think you know depending on each other, I mean we're happy to go, you know, we put in femoral lines in everybody. And so that's just sometimes they'll call up and just say, you know, we need a femoral line. And so that, you know, it's just that type of thing is uh or, you know, God forbid a spinal tap. You know, yeah. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, no, this is this is great. And definitely this was going to be my question. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought I think it's great to have you both on, on the show. And I think you're giving us a glimpse as to how this this relationship can work successfully. And um, and you shared with us, like Daphne was saying, a lot of interesting papers that are upcoming that we're going to be looking out for. So uh, thank you so much for, for making the time and uh, for chatting with us. And uh, we'll have more information about your work and uh, your contact information on the website. So if anybody wants to reach out, they can they can find you. Um, thank you very much. And, and uh, good luck for the rest of the of the conference. Thank you Thanks. very much. Appreciate My it. Pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast, or through our website, at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.